Traduction. Translation. Traduction. Welcome to Translator's Note, where we talk about translation today. I'm Abby, and I translate from Japanese. And I'm Julia, and I translate from Italian. And we're this year's hosts, recording in Iowa City at the University of Iowa MFA in Literary Translation. In every episode, we will explore a different theme or idea in the world of translation today. In this episode, we're going to take you behind the scenes at a translation workshop, talk with the director of the MFA in Translation and former American Literary Translators Association President Arona G. Then chat with scholar, translator, and University of Arizona professor David Gramling with our friend Reed Dempsey, David's former student who translates from German here at Iowa. Yeah, both of us actually got started as translators through classroom experience. We both came to Iowa to study different things, really. I came for poetry and Julia came for nonfiction, but we got seduced by translation along the way. Julia, why do you love translation? I was so excited to be in the workshop because it felt like this fun world literature book club. And in every workshop session, I was learning about different languages and by extension, different cultures and getting like to read the best of that culture's literature while also learning about English because when you're transferring one text into English, you're suddenly realizing all these things about this language that had sort of been invisible to me because it's my first language. So that was a really exciting experience. I felt the same. I think that like, well, our workshops are multilingual, you know, so everyone in the room is working from maybe a completely different language and translating into English. And that that was such a cacophony of sound and languages and was really exciting. Yeah, it felt like the first time that I had thought about English as a medium as opposed to my default. And that is something a lot of writers think about constantly, but uh, the translation workshop really introduced me to that in a concrete way. Right, because we're looking not only at English, but also at trying to understand whatever is happening in the source text in this other language. And that brings you back to English in this completely new way. Yeah, so mostly the, the workshops are end up being about English because a lot of the most commonly asked question I think is how, how do these multilingual workshops work if no one speaks the original language or maybe only a handful of people in the room? Um, so we actually thought that we'd go behind the scenes into a graduate translation workshop at Iowa and show you a little bit about how we respond to translations in progress. Okay, any questions for Carolyn? That's Arona G. He translates from Turkish and directs the program, like we said. This week, we're going to talk about two poems by 12th century Chinese poet Li Qingzhao, translated by Carolyn. Like everything else, workshop happens over Zoom. Oh, I see a question in the chat. Oh, yeah. Oh. Or, or Julia, you can go first. <laughs> no, I, my, I guess mine is kind of quick. That's Julia in class, by the way. Um, I was wondering if you were hearing regularity in the rhythm or the meter in the original or like because we don't speak each other's source languages we rely on each other and on our translations to understand as much as possible what's happening in the source text do you feel comfortable reading the original uh yeah how about you do that 
Okay. Um, so this is for uh, this first one, a southern song. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing we do a lot of is read out loud, sometimes more than once, sometimes over and over again. Mm. So there is clearly, isn't there? I mean, it, it, I mean the, the rhythm clearly is coming through. So the first three lines in each stanza follow uh, a, 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 a pattern, a rhythmic pattern. The fourth lines, maybe they are also a little different syntactically. They sort of stand out as they do in the English as well. Now, what I'm going to ask you is to read this in the English now. Okay. In heaven, the starry river turns. On earth, all curtains hang heavy. The chill spreads as tear stains scatter on the bedding. Rising to loosen a thin silk robe and idly wondering, how will the night be? Translation can feel like the ultimate level of close reading, but the classroom adds another dimension to it. Not only is everyone trying to read these English translations as well as they can, but through them, trying to help the translator read their source text more closely too, whether it's in Chinese or Turkish or Italian or Norwegian. Julia met with Aron to talk more about his ideas on teaching translation and what he hopes for emerging translators to gain. I'm not interested in what that word means in Chinese, but I'm interested in what that word in English is trying to capture of the Chinese word in that source text. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, so it's more, it, it's more the experience of that word the definition of it. I cannot tell you how precise that word is, the experience of the word, the literary, the creative experience of that word. So the first time one reads a text, one, especially in the foreign language, one is reading to understand. What I would like is not to stop there. I would like the student to actually get to a place from understanding to experiencing the text. When you're reading, you are inhabiting an acoustic space. It is not about the incidentals of a sentence or a word, but it's this overall experience. So when we ask the translator to look at this passage after we have looked at their translation, we're actually asking them to also look at their process of translating it as well. Not just between two languages, but what they did between two texts. You know, what besides words constitute a text, right? I mean, that's the, you know, the pauses, the rhythms, the, 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 the duration of sentences. 
And so all of those really are, belong to the region of experience. They don't really belong to the written text. It's the experience of the text. One reason why we read out loud is that we are actually trying to, um, to sound louder than our mind, mm. right? Because when we read quietly, it's mind reading. And the mind is going all these, you know, go, going through all these associations. When you read out loud, it's performance. You have to be somehow, you know, outside. You know, you're, you're doing this for something, you know, someone outside yourself. So there is a certain level of self-consciousness that comes to reading out loud that is very similar to the self-consciousness necessary to create a good translation. I love that because it, it feels sort of like in workshops, we're trying to take our translations from that mind reading into performance because Absolutely. I think a lot, a lot of the, the issues that come up are people internalize the experience of reading the source text, but don't, haven't thought about it maybe yeah. enough to, to make it or to articulate it as performance yet. Yeah. Yeah, because again, uh, remember what we create is yet to be read by the reader. You know, we always say that the translator is the closest reader of the text. Yes, to some extent, but that is not the measure of a successful translation. The measure of a successful translation is yet the reader the the one who is outside us as well also remember there are instances during the workshop when i will say this is not the task of this draft it's the task of six drafts down the road we really need to give ourselves a lot more time and a lot more reflection and and failure uh, to get to that consummate translation. I, I don't, I mean, I don't believe that you can perfect a translation by getting it workshopped uh, three or four times. Uh, and, you know, it takes a lot more than that. These conversations about language and translation and difference and reading are happening in translation workshops and outside of translation workshops all over the world between translators and people who study language, people who study literature, and even outside that world of literature or other arts. The movement of ideas across languages touches everything. It touches politics, public health, religion, science, economics. I got together with my friend Reed Dempsey. I am a doctoral student at the University of Iowa in the English program. Um, I am also an MFA candidate in the program in literary translation. Reed translates from German and got started as a translator after working with a professor named David Gremling, whose books include The Invention of Monolingualism, Linguistic Disobedience, which he co-authored, and the forthcoming Invention of Multilingualism. Hey, Reed. Hi. So if you were going to introduce David Gramling to somebody who didn't know about him, what would you say? 
Mm. I would hope that they could see my facial expression probably first. Uh, he was uh, an important instructor actually of mine at the University of Arizona. Um, and he's a researcher in fields of applied linguistics, cultural history, um, also some kind of geopolitical issues concerning language and statehood and identity, also a researcher in multi and monolingualism. What was your first impression of his class? Uh, I was really unhorsed a little bit, um, <laughs> I think by this. I had certain expectations of language learning classes uh, and also of college and kind of university level work in general. And in David's class, a lot of that fell away. And I sort of felt like anything could happen at any moment. So there was a, a huge kind of potential energy that was in the space and in the room. Is there anything that you think folks should know going into this conversation? I, I think people should know before going in and listening to this. David thinks on a really large scale and in a very kind of elegant way. Um, and there's, I guess you have to be prepared to, to think with that breadth, I guess, as well as a great depth. Um, and to not be worried about moving outside of boundaries of knowledges or boundaries between languages, uh, to let those barriers become permeable. What you're going to hear next is an edited version of our conversation with David, but we'll make the whole thing available too. As we've said, his work ties translation and literature to all kinds of other fields applied linguistics, particularly to issues in social and geopolitical theory. So we started by asking him to talk about his translation classroom as a place where these ideas mingle and mix. Here's what he had to say. I think what I try to uh, do is to let people find joy in the fact that language itself is just out of control. So um, there's, I think there's like a real, there's a kind of a conservative streak in translation studies and also a very kind of real, you know, kind of realistic, pragmatistic approach to translation in the world as in getting published and picking the right people and, you know, uh -huh. things like that, that can end up, um, you know, making people a little bit more fearful or a little bit more, um, aiming towards safety uh, than, than, uh, than is good for a classroom. That might be the, the kind of strategic um, moves and uh, that kind of thing might be really great for a career. It might be really great for getting paid. It might be really great for getting published. But when you're in a classroom, um, uh -huh. making plenty of space in that classroom for you know, language to be out of control and for translation to be out of control, because um, I love this quote from Peter Waterhouse, that's uh, the Austrian-British poet and translator. Translation first gets interesting when it gets out of control. I love that because, um, you know, you can have an, because translation of course has, has everything to do with how the world system of languages is perceived and conceived with the cosmology of what languages are. Do we think languages are integers that they interact with each other as in, in a diplomatic way or mm. how do they actually interact? And so there's a way of, of doing translation that sees languages as kind of dialoguing diplomatic integers. Um, but there's also a way of saying, wow, the, the linguistic world itself is messy and disorderly and out of control. And we translators are in that kind of 
oceanic wave of, of mm -hmm. stuff and that finding a way to get our footing, especially when we're in training or when we're learning, um, the tendency can be to kind of like fall back on very traditionalist or elitist or um, kind of prescriptivist ideas. And um, you might have to go back in that territory when you find yourself a publisher or when you find yourself a, um, when you're signing a contract for a project or something. But while in the classroom, um, letting it all hang out, letting it be completely as crazy as the actual world is, is really, really important. And I think just so staying in that, I guess what we'd call, you know, the psychoanalysts would call the, um, you know, the kind of the, the symbolic realm um, of what we do together as translators, mm -hmm. as users of languages, uh, as languagers, um, rather than in the real, you know, the real of translation pragmatics and politics is, it's a rough place. I mean, mm. um, the world of contracts and competition and publishers. Yeah. And if you rush into that stuff too soon in a kind of professionalization push, um, as some programs really encourage you to do, um, the Iowa one is not that way, if I understand it correctly, that the, the kind of mm -hmm. the, the um, expansion of the imagination as a user of language is really prized. Um, so that makes Iowa really a special place. I was thinking about some moments in our workshops where our instructor has just stopped the entire flow of class to work as a group on some on a poem or a piece of prose and to make it stranger and make it weirder or to do these over literal translations or to translate something back and forth a few times um, and really inviting everyone, every speaker of every language uh, to come in and talk about it. And those kinds of derailing movements or like where it gets catastrophized or where um, translation gets out of control. There are those moments in workshop all of the time. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's been a, like a really wonderful part of, of those workshop environments. My first real love in literary translation was um, a story by Murat Samungan that um, is in a, it's, it's coming out in an LGBT anthology of some sort. And he's a Kurdish Turkish writer who writes in Turkish. And it's about a character who is um, at some point in the story undergoes a gender confirmation surgery. I guess that's the wrong word in this particular story, but um, a gender uh, reassignment surgery. But you don't know that in the story because Turkish only has one third, uh, one gender, third person gender pronoun. And so translating into English was so wild because you can't, you can't foreshadow to readers that, um, that something is afoot or amiss. So you have to, you have to hide the um, pronouns throughout this text for about 20 pages without letting on to your readers that you're hiding anything. Um, that kind of stuff, it, it, going from trans and queer kind of approaches to, to translating, that's the kind of uh, challenge and, and out of controlness that just made me absolutely fall in love with literary translating. And it's everywhere, you know? Yeah, thinking so, about, I mean, gender marks and marked gender on the page and on the body yeah. and also like 
how surreptitious you suddenly have to be in English to conceal that for so many pages. Yeah. And what that, like there's a new act of concealment that's happening in the English translation that is not there in the Turkish and then making a counterbalance for that in some way. Um, yeah, and queer translation has so many more, or maybe not many more problems, but its own particular set of weights and balances and things that have to be adjusted. And, you know, those kinds of, um, uh, I suppose, barriers, and I love barriers, um, is exactly what keeps a lot of those texts from ever getting translated in the first place, you know? Um, so there's a political economy of kind of what gets translated and, and really interesting nitty gritty language barrier type of stuff is, is what keeps, um, you know, certain types of queer life, trans life from being shared, you know, and that, that I take personally, that kind of thing I, I definitely take personally. Mm, yeah, like an inherent semi-diversity kind of in the like experience of yeah. being queer and in the language itself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll take a quick break. Thanks for listening to Translator's Note. Now, the first thing I learned about David was that his classes ran multilingually, and I thought that was really, really cool. But then when I told a friend about it, a friend who's not a translator, his response was like, that's crazy. How on earth does that get done? And so I wanted to ask David more about how this kind of chaos that he's talking about looks on the ground. Yeah, thank you for reminding me about that particular aspect, Abby. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's really wild because University of Arizona, to take a, one example, is on indigenous land that is also used to be Mexico. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, and yes, our, our school colors are red, white, and blue and stuff, but this, there's nothing about the University of Arizona that says we are an English medium university. And the way I know that is that I used to work at an English medium university in Turkey. That doesn't mean we didn't speak, we, we spoke a lot of Turkish in class, but the official thing was that this is an English medium university. And so when I got to Arizona and I saw the kind of, um, I don't know, the implicit monolingualism of learning, um, I, I, I knew I was in trouble. I knew I had to fi find some kind of um, method or principle to honor the fact that my community of learning was going to be people of, uh, of lots of different first and second and third and fourth languages, heritage languages, um, languages they're learning. And so very easy, easily a, um, a, a university or a program can collapse into Anglo- I call it Anglo-generative because it's not just Anglo-centricity, it actually is the production of English through the mouths of everyone. And so I find this kind of Anglo-generative uh, fundamentalism on indigenous land to be really, uh, in 2020, to be really a problem. And I, I also got to know, you know, young people in Turkey when I was working with them, 2008 to 2010, who really, their, their, um, their language of, of ideas and concepts had become English and Turkish um, really be, was the, their language of, um, you know, home and friends. But I, I always felt badly that they didn't get an opportunity to write their papers in Turkish and to kind of figure out what is the, what is the Turkish word for historicize or queer or, you know. And so um, how, to, how to make sure people have the opportunity to develop their intellectual maturity 
in all their languages. The thing I try to do in my genetic classes and in some of the German classes is to tell people at the outset of the semester, please write whatever language you want. It's not your problem if I can't read it. That's my problem. I get paid to solve these problems. And this is a scandalous thing for anybody. <laughs> you know, um, people immediately ask, well, you know, how, how are you going to assess that? And I'm like, you know, I got, I got an advanced degree. We, we, we're problem solvers, you know. Uh, <laughs> so so the, the notion that there is no other option besides monolingual English instruction is really just so brittle, so brittle and so wrong and so inadequate for this world. Oftentimes in my German classrooms, a third of my students are Latinx students who grew up with English and Spanish and are bored a little bit of the bilingualism they have at the moment and want something brand new. And so mm -hmm. finding ways to translate from German into Spanish, different kinds of Spanishes, mm -hmm. Um, and making space for that in, in the classroom is, is really wonderful. It is this strange, strange moment where you see universities that are out of one side of their mouths kind of calling for diversity, inclusion, multiculturalism, and even multilingualism, while their actual policies um, and programs turn quite monolingual. And um, I don't know. You know, you are, you write about social political theory and you write about applied linguistics and you, you teach German and you, you teach literature and you're a translator. And these are all things that, that once you kind of start thinking about them as being in relation to one another, it starts to really make sense. What is the web like for you between them? Yeah, I mean, it, it all comes down to, to an everyday life, I think, uh -huh. for me. Um, you know, translating is an early morning affair usually. And you know, actually Tim Parks writes a bit about this. He has a kind of a recent piece about when in the day he translates and when in the mm. day he does creative writing. And mm. um, for me, it really is about where all these things can fall in a day. And um, so the web, the web is, it's, it's all about like a surprise discovery. I mean, the surprise discovery of, of mentors, because this is actually mm. all, it ends up being about a web of mentors um, and a web of people I emulate and admire. And that's the web. I mean, the web is like the people who have kept me in the game. Um, the people who kind of not, did not let me leave a conversation um, and wel welcomed me back. That's really what the web is, I think. It's, it's neat, you know, because the web is also here. You know, Reed was your student at at Arizona, in Arizona, and now is, you know, teaching also. It's kind of beautiful how the web kind of continues to circle. Reed, what was your experience like in that class? Oh, gosh. Uh, hearing David talk about how, um, if you think about it in terms of the influences on you and being allowed and permitted to participate in them, it makes it not only a more creative act, but a more sustaining one. You can go out and translate. You can go out and do these critical creative endeavors. Uh, and I didn't really know that that was possible until I saw other people doing it. Um, and that was hugely enlightening. Just having some lateral freedom and movement in those, in those classes uh, was, was huge for me. Mm -hmm. Really, really influential um, mm -hmm. and has lasted into my time at Iowa with the MFA here and the English program. 
I just think the next 20 years are just going to be a wild ride. You know, I mean, we're not, none of us are escaping it. Um, the, 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 the transformations that are going on in language, um, in monolingualism and multilingualism and translation and translatability, all of these things are from now till, you know, around 2040 are going, it's just going to be a sight to see. And it's a, it, it is a big battle. I mean, we think about people like Steve Bannon kind of going to Germany and, and, you know, QAnon in Germany. I mean, that's all translatability too. It's how do you make a, you know, how do you domesticate in Germany a poisonous idea? You know, those are, and, and these kinds of things, how to make uh, deceptively toxic green economies seem palatable in 80 different languages. You know, how, how, to, how to swindle people in 80, 80 different languages. I mean, the, the types of um, industrial power grabs that are going on by way of multilingualism and translation right now. Um, I feel like we need a, a whole, you know, militia full of, of smart, clever, passionate um, thinkers and interveners out there to catch and identify um, those things. And, um, you know, like any, anything from like a zero tolerance policy, like how does a zero tolerance policy, something that, you know, Germany and, and Australia never heard of, how do these things travel from one space to another? Who's doing all of that work? Who's, who's, making, um, who's making all of that, that kind of IP, you know, intellectual property, who's making all that stuff move, you know, mm -hmm. it's almost a, a really exciting investigative time. I think we're really losing the battle on some of that stuff. And the fewer people we train to be vigilant about it. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of things about, about media literacy in elementary schools, but are we doing that with with translation and multilingualism too, and our 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 presses and publishers, and our our professional organizations, do they care about that stuff too? So um, you know, I I definitely am interested in things like the translation of right wing ideology from one space to another, fascist ideology. Um, I think far too quickly fascism and things like that are associated with monolingualism. Well, you know, no, it's, it's, it's actually a global uh, market in these ideas and people, people, institutions and platforms are bringing and delivering them to end users. And so there, I think my message is simply, it's an endlessly fascinating sphere to investigate. It's a battle that we're having a hard time getting a foot in. Um, and we can't lose it because that's, that's how we lose the world. Um, and uh, I don't want to lose the world. Translators Know It is produced by me, Abby ryder Hoof, and by Julia Conrad. This show is an affiliate of Exchange's Journal of Literary Translation and is made with the support of University of Iowa Department of World Languages, Literatures and Cultures, and the International Writing Program. Nate Reap has made our very cool theme music, and extra music is by Siddhartha Corsis.
We'd like to thank Aronaji Janstein, Natasha Drovikova, the Exchange's editorial staff, especially Kaylee Lockett and Mallory Truckenmiller, and Aron's Thursday Night Workshop group, with special thanks to Carolyn Liu. Huge thanks to our guest David Gramlink and to Reed Dempsey. Luke Paisley is our chauffeur. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you will join us again next time. Translator's Note. Translator's Note.